0: William Lane Craig, he is fantastic to listen to. He's an apologist. He shares a story about a man who truly believed he was dead even though he was living. You heard that, right? This man, even though he's alive, was truly convinced that he's dead. He's a normally functioning human being by way of all of the bodily processes working this man, but he is utterly convinced he is dead. So his wife persuades him to visit a psychiatrist who tries in vain to convince him that he was in fact alive. So finally, the psychiatrist hits upon a plan. By the way, this is actually true, truthfully, a condition that some people have. It's extremely rare, but a living person actually truly can believe that he or she is dead. So the psychiatrist hits upon a plan And he showed the man medical reports and scientific evidence that dead men do not bleed. And after thoroughly convincing the man that dead men do not bleed, the psychiatrist takes out a pin and he pricks the man's finger. And when the man saw the drop of blood trickling down his finger, his eyes grew wide and suddenly he cries out, Look, dead men do bleed now that's probably not really an untrue story because like i said this really can be a condition but it really does very well help you understand that when people approach the bible they're going to come with pre-assumptions pre-assumptions are assumptions that you make or beliefs that you have Before you even look at the evidence and by the way, you're here with pre-assumptions I'm here with pre-assumptions. The atheist has pre-assumptions. The um, The universalist has pre-assumptions. Listen, every single human being has pre-assumptions You're not going to be alive without them. So I'm going to give you some presuppositions That's really what they are. They're assumptions or things that you believe before you look at the evidence. Presuppositions. I'm going to give you some that people have carried into the book of Jonah. You ready? Here we go. And it all descends on verse 17, which is what we're going to look at. Some people believe, though there is not a scrap of evidence for this, that Jonah was the son of the widow of Zarephath. Remember Elijah caring for the widow and her son during the drought. Well, that son... Was Jonah some believe Jonah others believe had a dream in the ship when he was asleep in the storm We all looked at that last week And he wrote it down in his book and what you've got is the book of Jonah It's about a dream that he had in a storm Others believe that Jonah is a copy of the myth of Hercules and the sea monster If you read that myth you can see traces of this in there Others have a presupposition that say that Jonah's ship to Tarshish was wrecked in the storm. And another ship came and rescued Jonah, and that ship had a fish for a figurehead. You know, on the front, the the prow of a ship, that's where the figurehead was. And it was a fish-shaped figurehead. So this was a storm-caused delirium that we see in the book of Jonah. And one final presupposition, and there's more of them, but let me just give you one more, that Jonah fell into the sea and found refuge in a dead fish floating on the water. Now everybody is going to carry into the study of the book of Jonah and virtually into any study of any book of the Bible these presuppositions or a presupposition. But this book, this book called Jonah more than any other book in the entire Old Testament, has been challenged and ridiculed. And the reason why it has suffered such opposition is verse 17. So let's get your Bibles open. We're going to look at verse 17 together. You follow along in your translation while I read from the English Standard Version, the ESV. Here's what it says. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, notice this is a great fish, not necessarily a whale. But could this have happened? Now, could this this have happened now brings in presuppositions. So what fish could have done this? This is what everybody has been thinking about. What about the gases in the stomach of the fish? What about the digestive juices? How could anybody survive that? Listen, there has been so much effort by Christians... To prove that this could have happened, and there's been an equal amount of effort by critics to prove it couldn't have happened, really, I mean, what could have happened? And what gets lost in either of those positions, the Christian trying to prove it, the non-Christian trying to disprove it, what gets lost in both of them is that, listen, this is a supernatural act of God, and it defies natural explanation, There is no natural explanation for this. I spent a lot of this series preparing for this, trying to find natural explanation. There is none. Is there a fish big enough to swallow a human being? Yes. Could that person really truly live inside of its belly, unaided by God? No. So I believe the power of God does what cannot be naturally explained. Listen, that's why it's called the supernatural. And I believe that God divided the Red Sea for the Israelites. There is no natural phenomenon that could account for a passage of two million Israelites through walls of water that somehow maintain their shape. There's just no way to naturally explain that. And I believe that God made an axe head float for Elisha, so that they could return it to its owner. I believe a donkey spoke to the greedy prophet Balaam, and to warn him, and I believe that water really did come out of the rock when Moses commanded it to, in order to quench the thirst of the Israelites. I believe all of that happened. I even believe that Joshua... Like the scripture says, prayed in the midst of a battle that daylight would endure and the sun and the moon stopped. Now we know the sun doesn't move, we know the earth rotates. It doesn't matter what the explanation jargon is, something stopped so that the sun did not move across the sky and neither did the moon. And in all of these examples, and I could bring out literally hundreds more in all of these, not only are there no scientific explanations for it, there's no way that they could have happened naturally, they're miracles. So good could God have sent a great fish to swallow Jonah where the prophet stays for three days and three nights and then later spit up on the shore alive? And my answer is this, absolutely. And I don't even think God broke a sweat. He's supernatural. And one of the most compelling, are you ready? One of the most compelling reasons to believe that what is recorded in Jonah 117 literally happened is the testimony of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here's what he says in Matthew 12. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That being said, we looked last week at Jonah as he's being picked up by the sailors, thrown into the Mediterranean Sea in the midst of a huge cyclone. And some might remember, does anybody remember the old, the original Batman show? I mean, raise your hand if you want to date yourself. I personally was too young. It's just a fact. But I do know this, that whenever any of the old Batman shows began, it started with these words, When we last left our heroes. So every show was built on the previous episode. It was a, it was a run-on, continuous saga. They were designed to pick up where the previous one had left off. If this were a Broadway, if Jonah were a Broadway show, then last week the curtain came down, and it created a cliffhanger effect they threw him into the cyclone into the mediterranean sea and then all of a sudden act 2 begins and the curtain raises when you be, when you come to verse 17 We're in Act 2 now. Act 1 is done, Act 2 begins, and it functions like a newspaper heading. Now listen, this is really important. The Bible does this, by the way, in Genesis chapter 1 as well. There's a verse that functions like the heading of a newspaper article that you read. It's the snapshot, it's the summary, it gets your attention, and then all of a sudden the article begins to flesh out what the headline was speaking about. And this is how it works in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's act two beginning. The curtain has come up. It's grabbing your attention. And the entire chapter two fleshes out what's going on to get him in the belly of the fish. What does he do in the belly of the fish? And how does he get out of it? That's act two. And we're going to look at that next week. But here's what we're going to see. We're going to see three truths in verse 17. Here's the first one. God is absolutely sovereign. Now I want you to camp on that for just a second. God is absolutely sovereign. Now hold that in your mind because some of us have been through very, very, very difficult lives, and it's important to understand what is meant by God's sovereignty. I'm going to tell you why it's important. You ready? Now hear hear this. Look at me for just a moment. I don't think there is any doctrine of God that is recoiled more by so many people the flesh hates this because the flesh wants its own throne and it wants to rule its own realm i'm telling you right now myself included there's not one of us that don't really prefer the throne There's not any of us that are truly in our flesh comfortable at the base of the throne with a life fully yielded to one who controls it all. It's just antithetical for the flesh. And when I say the flesh, I'm not talking about the organic matter of your skin. I'm not talking about your hair. I'm not talking about your shape. I'm talking about the part of us that is spiritual that either desires God's will or desires against God's will it's what the gospel is killing in us it is what sanctification is aiming for it is the taking off Colossians 3 and the putting on you take off the works of the flesh you put on the works of the spirit the fruit of the spirit this is the flesh it opposes God and there is no flesh that likes the sovereignty of God because here's what it means. It means that God has the power and the right to rule over, to order, and to control everything. Now, I want you to sift through that. And let me even put an explanation, exclamation point on this. You ready? Now, look at me for a second. If you come out of this sermon with absolutely nothing else but this, I will be happy. God's sovereignty means that he has the right, not just the power. He has the right and the power to rule over, to bring order to all, and to control everything. There is nothing outside of the purview of God's power and right to rule. Nothing. Now, you ready? I'm going to amplify this. You're not going to like this. Some of you are not going to like this. That means... That everything that occurs on this planet, everything that occurs within creation, bring it more personal, everything that happens in your life is God's right to make happen. Our flesh does not like this, especially when... You lose your job that you really love, especially when you lose somebody that you really love, especially when you wanted to love somebody and you lost them, especially when cancer is what the doctor says, especially when your children defy you and they defy God and walk away. Listen, everything is under the purview of God's sovereignty. Now, when I began to understand that, now listen, this has always been in my theology, but it really began to sharpen around 1998. As i began reading better books i began looking at the bible particularly to understand his sovereignty and when i began to understand god's sovereignty listen it brought my heart to the throne's foot gladly my flesh did not want to be there And my flesh began to think of all the reasons why God should not be sovereign. My flesh began to think of all the reasons where he obviously wasn't sovereign because I would have done things differently if I were God. And there's my reasons, my presuppositions, why God, maybe he's not fully sovereign. He is fully sovereign. There's not a more despised doctrine to an unbeliever than this one. It is completely contrary. It is completely oppositional to our desire to control our own lives. Listen, God's sovereignty decimates Sinatra's famous My Way song. It cannot exist in God's sovereignty. And despite the rebellious attitude attitude towards this doctrine, we've seen it on full display in the book of Jonah, and we're certainly seeing it in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish. He's going to appoint a lot of things. He's going to appoint three more things before the book is over. He's going to appoint a plant to grow up over Jonah to provide shade. He's going to he's going to appoint a worm to eat that plant to teach Jonah another lesson. He's going to appoint a scorching east wind. Listen, there's four times that the book of Jonah says that God appoint something because he's sovereign. Now think back with me over the events of the first chapter. Jonah was a prophet of the Lord. And by the way, he wasn't just a prophet. He was the prophet. Meaning he was called by God to serve God by functioning as a spokesperson. That's what it means. He's a prophet of the Lord. All all prophets did, right prophets, godly prophets. They just spoke the messages that God gave them to speak to the audience that God said to speak it to. And God had commanded Jonah... To go to the Assyrian city of Nineveh and preach against it, and Jonah refused to do it. He submits his resignation letter to the Lord. He tries to flee to Tarshish, but here's our sovereign God. He hurls a great wind on the sea, and the mighty tempest forced his hiding, rebellious prophet out in the open, and the sailors, at Jonah's instructions, picked him up and threw him in the sea. Get a little preview glimpse chapter 2 Jonah says to God you hurled me into the sea well look next week how can the how can the sailors do it and God too but I want you to think of these events through the lens of God's sovereignty now this is super super important that we can do this you ready let's go back let's think of the events of Jonah now through the lens of God's sovereignty how amazing That Jonah went to the seaport, Joppa, and just happened to find a ship ready to leave for Tarshish. That would have been a very rare ship. It took three years to get to Tarshish and back. What impeccable timing, one so incredible that Jonah could have, might have, falsely concluded that God had accepted his resignation letter and was letting him go after all, and here's a ship for him. Now, you ready? Watch this. God could have stopped Jonah on the way to Joppa like he did Balaam, another rebellious prophet. He could have done that. God could have made sure there was no ship bound for Tarshish at that harbor town. God could have sent a contrary wind. These were sailing ships. They didn't didn't paddle their way to Tarshish. They sailed their way. God could have sent a contrary wind as he did with the ship the Apostle Paul was on in Acts 27. That ship couldn't make any progress. He allows Jonah to get on this ship for a reason. Several years ago... Before I owned a cell phone, I had, the, I had left the office at church, and I was taking my mountain bike up at Jacobsburg Park, and halfway there, I realized that I had forgotten to take my bike shoes. My bike shoes have clips in them. You clip into the pedals. And so without, without those bike shoes, you really can't even pedal clipless pedals. And I had forgotten them, so I turned around. I'm halfway to Jacobsburg. I remember I don't have my shoes. I turn around, and I go home. We lived in Palmer. And as I pull into the street, Corriere Road into Pence Grant Development, I pull into the street. I see Denise pretty rapidly pulling out or getting ready to pull out. In the back of the van was our very young son who had just minutes before severely broken his arm. He'd been playing on the fireman's pole on our, on our swing set, pretending he was Spider-Man. And Denise had just hollered down to him from the window, don't, don't jump. He, she said, you are not Spider-Man. You have no superhero powers. Don't jump. Now, I don't really want to tell you who it is because he's got to come back up here and play guitar. But... <laughs> This very young son jumps anyways, and he lands on his right arm behind him, and he breaks both of the bones. And he comes into the house, and he's holding his right arm, and he's crying, saying, I don't have superhero powers. And I'm like, you're not very smart yet. (laughs) Now, Denise, leaving the other two of our children with a neighbor, she heads to the hospital, but listen, coincidentally... I just happened to pull in because I forgot my shoes and because I pull in because I had forgotten my shoes, it allowed me to take Matthew oops, to the hospital and Denise to stay back and take care of our kids. Now I still thank God, Literally, I really still thank God to this day that he used my memory lapse to get me home to be there for my son and for my family. And again, the skeptics are going to say, that was just a coincidence. But let me remind you of what we learned last week. Here's what a coincidence is. It's a miracle for which God chooses to remain anonymous. Listen to me, there are no coincidences in God's realm. None. Or else he could not be sovereign. This is our sovereign God who has the power and the right to rule over in order to control everything. Even a little boy who just broke his arm getting his absent-minded father home. God is absolutely sovereign. But we're going to learn something else as we go to point number two. God is relentlessly gracious. Now look at verse 17 again. And the Lord appointed a great fish to, and look at this, swallow up Jonah. Now, there are some who read this, and their minds, they're thinking that God is punishing his disobedient prophet. But have you ever considered that he had that great fish swallow Jonah up in order to simply save his life? To defy, now listen, I want you to think about this. To defy an earthly ruler in the ancient world, listen, you're going to die for that. You're not going to get out of that one. The ruler will have you executed. So how much worse is it to defy the living God? Jonah deserved to die for refusing to obey God's commands. No matter how you like this or how you don't like that, God would have been perfectly just to allow Jonah to sink to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea and die. That's the justice of God. He could have let him do it. Now think about this, because we don't like this. Our flesh recoils at God's justice as well. He is the creator of all there is, the rightful Lord of all there is, and Jonah defies him. Now can you pause for a moment, and let's, let's all of us put ourselves in Jonah's watery robes for a moment. He is floating now in this cyclone on the Mediterranean Sea. Which of us Now listen, you have to answer this honestly. I do too. Which of us has not defied and disobeyed the living God? Which of us truly, honestly, deserves God's mercy, love, and forgiveness? Listen, he's not obligated to save you. He's not obligated to save me. We've all defied him. He doesn't have to be gracious to us. He does not owe us anything. If he owes us anything, listen, let's just be real. Let's be stark with this. It's damnation. That's what we are owed. That's what we've earned. That's the paycheck that ought to be coming to us. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We not only rebelled against God personally, listen, every single one of us has hurt and harmed the people around us. We have broken every single one of the Ten Commandments. There is no exceptions to this. We have spitefully withheld forgiveness from those who have hurt us. Have you not done that? Have you not lied and deceived to get your own way? Have you not been unmerciful to others? Have you not lusted after someone's body or possessions? Have you not been more committed to your own glory and honor than another's? Or looked down on others in pride? Listen, I could go on in hundreds of directions. We've all violated these. So if God were to give you, and if God were to give me what we were owed, listen, I'm going to tell you what it is. It would be everlasting punishment, every single one of us. Yet God is gracious. He gives us what we do not deserve. He forgives us. He loves us, not because we earned it, but because he accomplished it. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 103. God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Now, when, when you're working throughout your week, and you're walking, and you're living, and you've probably got jobs, or you've got things that you need to do at home, you're out with friends, socializing, listen, I want, you to, I want to ask you this. Do you ever feel chronically like you're falling short? ever just feel like there's, you never have a day that God is just pleased with you. And maybe in the back of your mind, you really do feel like anything that's going to be bad is going to happen to you because God really has got to be getting tired of you. You've got to realize and you've got to understand that you will never earn God's love. He is freely giving it to you. You're never going to have a day so good where your walk is so tight with Jesus that God will finally say, yes, I can love you and I can bless you. Well, you can't earn it. And if you can't earn, now this is kind of interesting, if you cannot earn God's love, you cannot really unearn it. And that's what steadfast love is. Now, you ready? Here it is. God's love will never increase for you. It is already as full as it could possibly be. And it can never decrease for you. You can't ever catch God on a bad day where he says, you know what, I just need a little time away from you. And you'll never find God's love ending for you. It will go on into infinite future for all eternity. There is no increase, there is no decrease, and there is no end. It is steadfast. And that's what this word means. Now, I want you to hear this. God will never cast you aside for faithlessness. Now, there's a legalist here, I'm sure, that's going to say, well, man, Pastor Tim, you just gave a big old license for sin. Paul treats this in Romans. But God will never cast you and he will never cast me aside for faithlessness. You cannot climb your way out of God's love. You cannot be thrown into any Mediterranean cyclone and all of a sudden be beyond the love of God. It is relentlessly for you. I am so thankful that God is relentlessly gracious to us, and he was for Jonah. He appoints a great fish to swallow him up. He saves him from death. He demonstrates his grace. Now listen, watch. Yet being swallowed by a stinking, slimy, slimy, dark fish hardly feels like grace, does it? Now think about this. Why didn't the Spirit of the Lord just carry Jonah away to dry land like he carried away Philip after he preached to the eunuch? Why not just send a chariot of fire down to those choppy seas and pick him up like he did Elijah? Or why not a giant eagle to get him like he did with Gandalf? I think I'm mixing my metaphors. Why a great fish? And why did God have it swallow up Jonah? Why? The answer begins to be found when you realize this is less about punishment and discipline and more about heart surgery the fish experience is what is going to finally produce brokenness we're going to look that look at that in point three but just before we do let me ask has there been a great fish experience that god has brought into your life now let me explain that has there been a difficult experience? That has swallowed you up, maybe for weeks, months, or years. It's an experience that you're trapped in. And it doesn't matter how many books you read, it doesn't matter how many well meaning friends say the most pithy things to you, you cannot seem to get out of the belly of this fish might be a job that you hate, but you feel trapped in. It could be a loveless marriage that you're now trying to survive to the end. Perhaps it's a child that is more difficult to raise than you ever imagined. I mean, it could go on and on. I could give you a lot of different ways that those fish bellies occur in real life. But let me ask you this, or let me bring this distinction to you. Are you ready? This is really important. Storms in life terrify us what i mean by that is those times where the whole ground underneath you peeves up and you cannot get solid footing they terrify us and they move your eyes just like it did to peter on the wind and the waves they move our eyes to our circumstances now watch this distinction but the belly of a great fish breaks us And it moves our eyes to our hearts. Now, are you hearing the difference? The storms in life terrify you. And it moves your eyes first initially to the circumstances you're in. But when you're trapped in the belly of a great fish in life, it will break you. You will either harden your heart against God, and you will create this black book that you bring into the judgment realm, where you've got page after page of evidence that God is not good for you. God has not been good to you. And every time anything bad happens in life, well, there's a new page of evidence that you write down, and you store it into the annals of your memory, and it justifies why you're keeping God at bay and why you don't want anything to do with him or his people. And all the while, your heart is calcifying, and God will bring that fish until you break. If God has sent a great fish to swallow you up, can you trust that he is absolutely sovereign? And do you possibly think that a sovereign God does not know where you are or understand the pain and the discomfort you're in? Can I remind you that there is nothing that you will ever experience in life that Jesus Christ cannot personally identify with? Nothing. And that great fish has swallowed you up and God is doing surgery on your heart and he will, listen, he will have it spit you out the very moment his purposes are finished because when rebellion meets redemption, the outcome is beautiful. But it leads us to our final point. God is resolutely determined. He is resolutely determined. You know, when you raise your first child, everything that happens is frighteningly new my parents y'all know what i'm talking about i mean everything don't you feel when you first have that first baby they're so fragile they're gonna break you're so worried about everything well let me tell you about matthew i told matthew before the sermon you're gonna be i'm gonna make you famous or infamous one or the other but matthew when he was very young he was with me at a i don't even think he remembers this this is how young he was he was with me at a youth leaders meeting that we had in a home of one of my youth leaders. And Matthew, he's always been a great kid. He really has. He's been one of those kids that you really don't need to keep a continual eye on him. So he's basically got free reign. My father, by the way, used to say that Matthew was a, a nosy kid. We would, we would counter that with he's a curious kid. And that really is Matthew. He is very curious. Well, the home that we're meeting in had a second story. Now, we're meeting in the living room. There's a second story, and there's a balcony which overlooks the living room. And in that balcony was a railing that was built along it to keep everybody safe. And we're meeting, and all of a sudden, suddenly, Matthew cries out for me because somehow he got his head stuck between the balusters of the railing. Now, to picture this, I've provided some photos of similar situations, just to help you. (laughs) This is what I'm seeing when I look up to my four-year-old son whose head is stuck between the railings. Now watch this. How awful would it have been if I said, you know what, I'll be up there when the meeting's over. Just kind of let your head rest on the bottom rail. Yet it feels, now look, look at this verse again. It feels kind of, well, excessive. That God leaves Jonah in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Why? There's two keys to understanding the length of time that Jonah is in this fish. These are so important. The first one, theological. The second one, more practical. Here's the first one. I believe it's the reason this book is so mocked and criticized by people. This verse, verse 17, it's a sign that points Forward to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the sign of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's the clearest one in all of the Old Testament. And there's been massive effort by critics to prove that neither Jonah nor Christ's death, burial, and resurrection ever happened. So, in other words, the first reason Jonah's in that fish for three days and three nights is because Jonah is serving as a sign for Jesus, who will be in the death grave fish for three days and three nights. But there's another key to understanding the length of Jonah's time in this fish. Verse 17. You know what? i got to tell you this. Well-meaning men and women have ordered and created our Bibles. And they've created chapter divisions to organize it. Listen, the chapter divisions are not inerrant. They're not infallible. They're not part of the original Manuscripts. They serve, they're for us. And what unfortunately happens is that verse 17 goes with chapter one, made distinct from chapter two, but in the Hebrew original, chapter or verse 17 really goes with chapter two. So the distinction is before that. Verse 16 ends, Acts one or Act number one. So when you know that, the very next verse then, listen, you've got to connect that in. That's how you study the Bible. The very next verse, which normally would be verse 18, which is chapter 2, verse 1, says this. It's very important. Then, that's the key word. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Then occurs after Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. Do you understand this? What's happening is that it took three days and three nights for Jonah to break. And you're asking, well, how could that possibly be? Well, listen, I have a lot of friends, and I myself have been in great fish experiences of turmoil and pain for a long time before I came to the end of my rope. Our flesh is quite resilient. It took being stuck in that great fish for those three days to get Jonah to arrive at brokenness. And I want you to hear this very clearly. In fact, I put it up on the screen for you to be able to get it and write it down. All our trials are custom designed by our resolutely determined God to be exactly what we need to cry out to him. I think, I want to be very careful saying this, I think that I've come across almost all of the pain that depraved human beings can create. In 22 years of ministry, I think I've almost, it's rarely, really rare that I hear something new that I haven't heard before. It might be in a new context, a little bit different form, but not a whole lot of new anymore. And I've heard so many stories of suffering and trials and pain and great fish belly experiences that I have come to an absolutely certain conclusion. I don't even wonder about this anymore. I know for a fact, certainly in my heart, but a fact because Scripture says it, That God will never, ever leave his children in a trial one second longer than it needs to happen. Not even a second. Now watch this, listen to this, and he will not take you out of it any second sooner than you need to be in it. And is it because he doesn't love you? Is it because he's malicious? Is it because he's kind of sadistic? None of that is true. It's literally because he's loving, because he is relentlessly gracious, he is sovereign, and he is absolutely, resolutely determined. He's going to get to your heart. Even if it takes 40 years to do it, he will get to your heart, and he will bring you to brokenness, and finally you can turn to him with a yielded heart. He will not relent. He sent that great fish to save more than Jonah's life. He put him in there for three days and three nights to get to his rebellious heart and break it. And we're going to look at that more next week, the path of brokenness. We're going to find the grace of God that's available even in the midst of the fish. But let me close, let me bring this to an end by bringing you back to what we've seen today. God is absolutely sovereign. And he appoints hard times as well as good times. Listen, difficulties as well as blessings. Yet in both hard and good, difficult blessings, in both of them, his relentless grace is on full display. He is resolutely determined to make us supremely joyful in him and useful for him. And to do that, we've got to walk with him in faith and obedience and that storm in life is brought to create that fear to move us to him now watch and the belly of the great fish is to do heart surgery it's to get you down in a trapped place where you cannot turn away and you cannot avoid the beautiful stare of god and he will take his word and he will perform surgery and he will get out of you the ulcers And the cancers and the tumors that are blocking you from a supremely joyful life. You're going to see this next week. Really, honestly, today was to prepare you for next week. Because chapter 2 fleshes out verse 17. And what we saw three weeks ago with Psalm 107, is that God will bring you to your trouble. He will bring you to your tight place. That's the belly of the fish. So that you will cry out to him in your trouble, and he will come, and he will relieve you of your distress.